got a special episode tonight for All Hallows Eve. Nobody knows what that is. It's just a thing people say sometimes. I think I think that's a real thing. That's probably where Halloween comes from. Hi there. This is Luke, and on today's episode, we look at Hereditary and discuss genre, elevated horror, and visual style. Welcome to Notes from the Silver Screen. It was my first funeral. You were so beautiful, pale and mysterious. No one even looked at the corpse. Where is the poison? The battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead. It is because I called her myself once, years ago, to help you. What are you talking about, Mom? It's no accident that your son is a gifted traveler. I cannot be judged by false Christians, for I have done nothing save preach Christ's true gospel. No. No. No, 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 no. I do something. But your sister is dead! She's gone forever! And what a waste! If it could have maybe brought us together or something. If you could have just said, I'm sorry, or faced up to what happened, maybe then we could do something with this. But you can't take responsibility for anything. So now I can't accept. And I can't forgive. Hello, all you ghouls and goblins. So, on today's episode of Notes from the Silver Screen, we're doing a special themed episode. Originally, I was going to do Adam's Family, which is a fun film. I've watched the past couple Halloweens, but it's not a great film, especially from a narrative standpoint. It's kind of just fun. I think it's a fun family film. So I rewatched it, and then I decided that it doesn't really have enough sustenance to sustain a podcast episode. So we pivoted. And we watched Hereditary. Uh, what was Hereditary? 2018? It's pretty recent. That'd be my guess. Uh, Ari Aster's debut film, Hereditary. And I thought it was just fantastic. I was blown away. I don't really watch a lot of horror. And I feel like... Because Hereditary isn't your standard horror film. And I feel like the stuff it deviates in really drew me in a lot more than, than standard horror schlock. But also, I guess I kind of have a cynical view of horror. A lot of people, I guess, unfairly judge horror as low-class cinema, and I'm kind of part of that. But just in general, the genre doesn't call to me all too much. Yeah, it's because it's really hard to make a good horror film. It's just, there's just the magic ingredient that you need, and you can't really quantify it. It just comes together. Like, going into this movie, I thought... Like, I'd seen trailer stuff, and it looked intriguing, I guess, but my expectations, honestly, were for it to be just a middle-of-the-road horror film, like most of them are, really. And, yeah, it it was much better. Yeah, I thought it would be kind of like like Lazarus effect, I think it was, with uh, Olivia Wilde or something, where you watch and you're it's okay, like, it's a story. It's just mediocre, like, it's not scary at all, it's just something to fill the time yeah it was, a, it was a slow build but at the end it's just a like a punch to the face really it comes in it's worth it just to for the last 
like was that 20 minutes maybe yeah probably half hour i'd say i guess one place to start would be the the production of the film so um ari aster he graduated from afi and he had made a, a few shorts that had some traction i think like the biggest headline he made was like his thesis film got leaked and so it was circulating online for a while and made some some headlines somewhere but he has I, I listened to a few podcasts with him and he was talking about how he had written nine or ten scripts and he was just in the studio system going to meetings pitching them trying to get funding he got a couple that got a little bit of traction but nothing was really going through and then he decided one of the his deciding reasons to you know write and and produce or get produced hereditary was that horror is generally done low budget and it offers a good return from a studio system. Horror is mostly a good bet because they're some of the cheapest films being made and they have crazy returns. I, I hereditary had a 9 million budget and I think it's box office was at least over 50, 60 million. So the studio's happy with that, and I think it helped him get his foot in the door. And then when that was in production, you got to do Midsommar, and I'm sure he has other stuff in the works now. I liked him. Like, I, I don't think I've seen any of his work before. He, he doesn't seem like he has a lot under his belt. But he seems to have, like, a, a unique, like, vision or a, or a, a style, I guess, that shows through in the shots. Looking at Midsommar, I think that's there, too. Like, you can kind of see similarities i think between them if you look for them but i mean midsummer doesn't hold up to this one uh, it's not as good as a movie i think uh, like i liked a lot of his shots like for example the shot outside where it's like just the trees in the house from out front and it's uh daytime or nighttime and it switches in an instant to the other way mm -hmm. or from the very first shot of the movie where it pulls into the dollhouse and then it uh and then it becomes like the real house and i think you kind of see that shot or that kind of shot actually in a few um other places in the movie maybe i don't think it's quite as blatant as that like where it, just like the furniture or something in a room makes it look kind of small and, and miniature i thought that was a fun little little twist to it so one thing that i didn't realize watching it but that shot where you dolly through the her workroom where she's constructing all these miniatures and then you go into the son's room, that's the opening shot of the film. You pan from the window through the through the workroom and then you go into his bedroom through the dollhouse. And generally, you know, when you when you're analyzing a film or you want to like dissect the theme of a film, you look at the beginning and, and ending of it and Aster was talking a little bit about this idea at um, being like a doll or being powerless is like them blurring the line between what is the dollhouse and what is the real house? What are the doll people and what are the real people? Like this thematic construction is that the characters, the family in the film are ultimately powerless. They They don't really have agency they're kind of being railroaded by 
you know, this cult and, and they don't even realize what's happening. And they, they're kind of forced into the position that the cult members need them to be in to accomplish their goals. And then the, the film in general is kind of interesting because it is a horror film, but like if you flip the script, it is a success. It's, it's a, like, instead of ending with all oh, this, you know, terrible monster destroyed us all. The ending is interesting because it is the family being killed and the son possessed by the king of hell. But the music, especially at the end, it's like these triumphant, you know, orchestral playing as all of the cult members chant hell payment because it is a success for them. It's like the end of a end of a heist film where they're all together with their spoil celebrating their success. Yeah. I thought that and the ending was striking in that way. Like right up until he falls out of the window, right? And he's possessed. Like that's like the climax of the horror. That's like where it's you're on the edge of your seat and it's really kicking off. And then as soon as like he falls out, it's quiet. Like all that's gone in an instant. And I think it's interesting. After that, you kind of like take the view of the cultists. And so it's not really scary anymore. It's just intriguing and horrible, but intriguing. Well, I don't know. Just one more thing on that that final shot. I, I did think it was really interesting. You've talked a little bit about how Aster has a very distinct and and for a like for a debut film, a very pronounced visual style. Like you can tell a lot of the shots, this this mastermind behind them. There's some driving purpose to the the framing and, and structuring of the shots, which I thought was really cool. And I feel like in Midsommar, he gets a little more extreme with that. And possibly, well, in my experience, to the detriment of the film, but I have a lot more problems just with this whole structure and the, the premise behind Midsommar, which this probably isn't the place to get into it. But I did think it was interesting that in the ending, we just stay on, is his name Alex? Alex Wolf? Mm -hmm. That's the actor, right? Yeah. Char no, Charlie's the little girl. What's the Peter, boy? I think. Peter. Yeah, we just stay on Peter's face there. And it's a pretty close framing. Like when uh, Joan gets up to get the crown, we can like just barely see the edge of her elbow, like her out of focus in the background. And we stay, I think it's a good minute and a half, two minute shot where we're just there on his face. And he's just pretty blank because at that point he's already been possessed. I just felt like that was a really interesting choice, just sticking on him. And he's he's the focus. It's not the these cult members. I know I just talked about how the ending is is the ending of a successful heist film for these cult members that they've achieved their goal and it's this exultant piece, but the focus isn't on them. It's on him, which I thought is interesting because, I don't know, he's he's kind of blank in that moment. It's like he, he's not really there. What What's the motivation behind staying on Peter's face? I don't know. One for Ari Aster to film. One thing I loved that Aster said when he was going through, when he was pitching Hereditary, trying to get funding to produce it, um, his 
elevator pitch was it's a family trauma that tur- that curdles into a nightmare which i kind of love that and i think it fits so well for hereditary which is i guess is why that was his pitch line because it sums it up perfectly because it really isn't a standard horror film it the first hour there's not really anything supernatural about it at all it's about a family dealing with the loss of a loved one and then as it curdles into this nightmare that's when things go off the rails that when it that's when it ratchets it up to you know an 11 and and things start going crazy we have the supernatural horror elements um, that we're familiar with from the genre start to play in a lot more i think they had a good balance sometimes like this is another thing that's really hard to get is making the character sympathetic because I think it's a lot about pacing, like letting you get to know them a bit and then something terrible happens and then you see their their reaction to it and them trying to deal with it. And I think there's a there has to be a right balance with that so it doesn't come off like just heavy handed a little, you know, so you don't really sympathize with the characters or if if there's an absence of it on the other hand, then there's really no drive behind it the way it was paced. You kind of understood the family first, and then, you know, when the the daughter dies, you're able to see their grief, and and it makes sense, and the motivations of the characters make sense, which you know that's another thing with horror films, a common trope, that they just do stupid stuff. In in this film, they were able to have that that grief of losing a loved one, uh, losing well, and I don't know if she's exactly loved one, like. The relationship is estranged, but her, like her mother had died at the beginning, right? So that's just another facet in there, though. I think a, a lot of the credit can go to Tony Collette. Like she, I think she's a perfect cast for this she's film, so honestly. Um, and you see, like her grief when she finds her dead daughter, and understanding that, uh, it makes sense that she dabbles in the occult, right? Like if that hadn't have happened, then maybe you can roll your eyes at at her going to the Ouija board or something. Or I don't think it would be that extreme because you still understand in the abstract, but it just brings a little more reality to it, I think. And in doing so is a is an asset to the film and makes it more rewarding when the horror element is really introduced. Yeah, because it's not it's not like a plot contrivance. It's not, oh, it's a bunch of teenagers who are bored, so they pull out a Ouija board and and then some evil force enters the house. It's both understandable because it's it's character driven. It's emotionally driven. It's a choice that her character is making. But even deeper than that, after after we finish the film, we understand that something was going to happen anyways. There were there were these outside forces that were pushing them towards this. There's that one shot where the mail's in the, the mail slot. It's already been delivered. And then another hand comes in and drops off that, uh, what's it called? Like a flyer for a seance, a seance for skeptics. It's a, it's a really short shot that, you know, you blink and you miss it. But after that's thrown away, after they don't call up or go to the seance, that's when Joan shows up at outside of grief counseling and, and kind of 
you know, tells Annie down and, and makes her stop and talks to her and, and gets her number. And then there's even, um, I forgot to pay attention when we rewatched the ending, but in the script, when Annie knocks over the paint that, sp that spills on the, on Joan's number and that, and then she decides to call her and meet up with her for the first time. It explicitly says in the script that her hand was too far away to touch the paint. So like Payman, he knocked over the paint to draw, to draw her attention back to Joan's number. And there's, I think one of the reasons I love Hereditary so much is there's a lot of stuff that Ari puts in there and he doesn't care if you see it or not, right? It's there. And if you're observant, you'll see it. If not, it doesn't really affect. It, it's just these little Easter eggs that slowly build up to the climax and conclusion. But it doesn't really matter if you see them or not. If you do, it adds to this uh, growing idea of the, the cult and, and the occult. But it just adds something to, to the rewatch as well, being able to point out or, or catch little hints with you know the symbol of payment or um the delivery of the seance note or a bunch of just little little attention to detail moments yeah i think even with the more obvious stuff like once this, the spooks start happening it's a it's kind of a measured introduction like when um with the the clicking noise for example right going around or like when Charlie's standing in the corner and he wakes up and then her head falls off. It's like, it's, it's, it's very controlled in what happens. It's not all out at once. It's a, it's a part of the buildup. I like that. And I think, I don't really remember if there were a lot of jump scares in there or maybe any at all. I think kind of what I would maybe count as it is when it cuts to Peter's waking up and he sees like the, the chair with like a jacket on it or something that looks like a, a person maybe. And that was a kind of a quick cut. Even then, I don't think it's necessarily a jump scare, but I think it might, might be, you know, if you depending on your definition of it. And I like that. I think jump scares can get a bad rap because they're used poorly. You know, in a lot of horror films, they're just, it's kind of the go-to just cram this in there. Cause that's what makes a horror film. But I think they're skillfully used. I know there have been like other uh, like video essays and stuff on that. I'm sure you can find. It's not a novel idea, but um, looking at it, if you can use it in the right place to build suspense rather than just as a cheap scare, it can really add to to the, the atmosphere of a horror film. So, the the idea of jump scares is kind of interesting. I think they're one of the main reasons I've always disliked horror. And I feel like the, the last thing you said is important. I don't think that jump scares can be used to, to ratchet up the tension because they're, they're the release. In, in horror, suspense, it's the same as in comedy where, where you have to build up to a climax. And, you know, once you deliver the punchline, then like all of that work is gone and you have to start from zero. Once you... Once you have that scare, you alleviate that tension for a while, and then you have to work to build it back up. Um, and I, I really love the tone of Hereditary, 
a lot more than than the horror I've seen, which admittedly it's been years since I've watched horror films. But the the biggest difference for me is the lack of the the jump scares. And even, you know, in, in a scene like where you see the the shadowy figure of the chair and hoodie. Or for me, the, the one that stuck out was when Tony Collette is like crawling through the air behind Alex. Yeah, that was a striking bedroom. shot. It, it's a gorgeous shot and it looks beautiful. And it seems like so novel too. Like I'm, nothing comes to mind of someone it looks like she's kind of crawling, swimming through the air. Yeah. It's unnatural and, and new. Really and good use of wire work. But it's interesting because it isn't the focus, right? Because she's moving, she attracts your attention. But on the rewatch, I don't think either you or I saw that she was in the shot before that. She's just sitting there in the corner silently and not moving. So if you don't like happen to catch her in the corner, you don't even see she's there until she runs out of the room. But she's not the focus. And I feel like in a lot of the the lesser horror films, you would accompany that with, you know, like some screeching violin or some really loud noise to startle you and drive home the scare. But Hereditary isn't about eliciting a scare. It's not about scaring you. It's about unsettling you. It's about terrifying you on like this emotional deeper level than just, oh, oh man, that, that was spooky. It's It's not about those cheap scares. And that's why I love it. And I think that that accounts for everything from the the setup, from the story point of view, to the cinematography, to the the like character design and everything plays into this. I think one of the most striking things to me was the shot length throughout the film. I feel like it has an average shot length of four or five seconds, probably, versus you know it's probably two or or a little bit more times longer than the shot length of a lot of films not not even to mention horror films specifically and i think it works so well in this film because it lets you i'd say ari is a master at constructing a disturbing image and then having you linger with it and he's also really good at knowing when not to show something like with the initial beheading of charlie the reason that sequence is so impactful is because we don't see it. So um, with that, that scene of, of Charlie's death, I mean, we, we get a short cut of the impact with the dummy, but then just like with the ending scene, we just stay on Peter. We don't see into the, into the backseat. We don't see the, the bloody body and we don't see the head until you know, several scenes later when Tony Collette is having her freak out and it makes it that much more impactful because it like lulls you into this idea of, oh, we're not going to be seeing anything or in at least one of the podcasts with Ari Aster, they talked about this idea that it tricks you into thinking it's some more elevated um, film where they're not going to show us gore. It's it's too above that, right? It's going to be all cerebral, this idea of dealing with trauma or horror. And then when Tony Collette breaks down, she has these gut-wrenching sobs 
then boom it's not just oh, the yeah. decapitated head it's covered with ants and it's all bloated and it's grotesque and it's just disturbing it, it's hard to talk about horror films because I, well this is probably true of like any movie honestly but horror stands out to me maybe above the rest maybe it shouldn't but I think it's kind of an eye of the beholder thing as to what makes it good. I'm sure there are some people that would watch this that uh, would find it underwhelming or mediocre. And I also think of uh, like the Insidious series, which stand out to me as also as good horror films. And when I think about that, it's really choosing an idea and a world to build. It's about introducing some novelty, I think which is difficult because you're constrained in a certain way to the occult in this movie, you know, the cold or this one is particularly like based on the lore of like hell. And it's based in some real like secret order type stuff that, you know, there's a historical basis for some historical mythology. But I think any movie, if you're going to do a horror, it's got to be some kind of specter or, or some, you know, so you're really constrained in that way. But like looking at this movie, that was just an element of it. We already talked about it's kind of a drama with horror in it. Or Insidious, what really, I think what makes that a good series is it also doesn't really have a lot. It has jump scares. And I think it's more of a traditional horror film. But it has like a a different world with these strange characters just what stands out in my mind is like when he goes into the nether and they had those people, those smiling faces and stuff like that. Yeah. I just think kind of focusing on, on the world rather than less on the particulars can be a strength in making a film like, like a horror film that's impactful. I guess just take a bottom down approach or top, top down approach. So you're saying that horror that works better for you it's for coming from a world building standpoint where it it feels lived in and it feels like the the scare or, or whatever the evil forces that they're combating feels like it's part of the world and that's what makes it scarier maybe i think more like i just it needs some novelty in it and it doesn't have to be big or showy but if you just take a horror film off the shelf, it's just going to be a ghost running around killing people. It's like any other film. So I feel like maybe Insidious, you know, has some novelty in it, in, in the astral projection and, and the strangeness of that world. Heredity has it in kind of the niche area of this particular possession and, and the, the cult kind of wedding that. And also in having it rooted in a drama. So I think if you can approach it in a novel way, that really opens up the possibilities for you to make a good horror film. And then you don't have to use the the traditional tropes that are going to diminish the quality of it as a crutch, since you have something of a little more substance to go off of. So my take is you you should utilize the tropes to further your theme. And I'm... Correct me if I'm wrong, but Insidious, the the stories about a kid who saw or the man who saw ghosts as a kid related to like his family or like isn't the the ghost 
after his son or something like that. Yeah. So I feel like the... I'm not really sure on Insidious, but I feel like there's something deeper there where it isn't, you know, a family is being haunted by a ghost, but it strives to integrate that haunting into some thematic story about family and, I don't know, something to do with father-son relations or... I wonder. It's really hard to nail down. I think I'm just talking around it, really, because I, I think so much of it is presentation. If you look at the demon and insidious it can be like scary in 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 brief cuts of it you know when it's used as a jump scare that's you know we've talked about jump scares i think there's some good use of that in in that particular film but really when it holds on him it looks like you know it's kind of comical in a way kind of it's not necessarily reality but you don't care it's it's about i think in a word atmosphere creating something that is engaging because really insidious is more of a fun horror film than a scary horror film i would say maybe more on the guilty pleasure side so uh, you know there's a lot of different approaches it's kind of interesting that you said fun because one thing that struck me that maybe it's just because my sensibilities isn't really in the horror genre and re he like grew up watching a lot of horror films that's part of his i guess cinematic basis is the idea that there is humor in hereditary to to ari aster the scene where charlie appears in peter's room and her head falls off and it becomes a nerf basketball to him that's humorous and i i can understand from an analytical standpoint like where you could say that that's like has an aspect of dark comedy to it but watching the film the furthest thing from my mind was, oh, that's kind of funny <laughs> that her decapitated head turned into a basketball. That was miles away. But it brings up this idea of in modern film discourse, it's thrown around this phrase or this idea of elevated horror that there's a, a new wave in horror of more cinematic films or more um, serious horror films getting away from the the slasher or I guess the convoluted genre flick the lowest denominator B horror schlock and creating a film in the horror genre that has something to say hereditary is obviously what m most people would consider elevated horror I think also us Get Out well. yeah. Us, Jordan Pill um, Ari Aster Ro Robert Eggers with The Witch the Lighthouse is more of a, a literary book than a horror book or a genre, or a literary film than a horror genre film. But I feel like The Witch, I haven't seen it, but Eggers is probably what people would group into this movement of, I guess, auteur-based or elevated horror, where it's kind of superseding the the genre conventions. And I think one of the the most interesting things I learned through listening to Ari Aster was his, his approach to his films, both Midsommar and Hereditary, was he had an idea. He wanted to write a film about a family trauma, about dealing with family loss. And he found that through horror, he could use the conventions to 
deliver his message. And then he he does the he tries to do the same thing with Midsommar, which for me just completely doesn't work. I really hated it because I had such high expectations from Hereditary. But in Midsommar, he tries to take a, a make a breakup film in the psychological thriller horror type genre. So I think that's interesting taking uh, an idea or a theme like in hereditary this i this theme of of family loss you know and this idea of of the occult and and being um not being in control of what happens to you the lack of agency that the family experiences and their you know visual standing of dolls in a dollhouse and then using that to kind of provide more depth or more meaning to, you know, having a, a haunting in the house or having a seance or I guess the things we see in every horror film by building them into this, by taking a theme and bringing it to the horror structure, it provides a greater depth than just saying, oh, I want to make a horror film, so I'm going to need, you know, some type of ghost or spirit or evil that's going to be attacking the family. I also, you know, want a family that can be killed off one by one. Yeah, it's kind of, I'm running into the same problem you had where it's hard to, I guess, formulate a concrete idea or articulate it well. But I feel like one of the keys to creating elevated horror is not starting with the genre and saying, what, how can I get to these points? but instead starting with a theme and saying, how can I use these points to further explore this theme? Because we, we spend a lot of time with the family in Hereditary and, and seeing these relations. I don't know. I, I feel like I really like that I went in expecting a horror film and I wasn't scared at all for the first hour. And I just got sucked into this family drama with... You know, Steve being the greatest husband father ever, just trying to hold his family together. Yeah. And Tony Collette going off the rails and, and losing, you know, kind of her grip in a very human way after experiencing the loss of her mother and her daughter. And the the son dealing with this grief as well. You know, there's that excellent dinner table scene where Annie and Peter blame each other for Charlie's <laughs> death. And you you kind of get lost in the the human drama of it all, so that when this climactic horror ending hits you, it really comes out of nowhere. And like you said, it's just a a gut a gut punch. It just smacks you right in the face. And one of the things that people always talk about in horror is this idea of it's kind of cliche how people stay in a haunted house or you know, they go out looking for somebody one by one and get picked off by the killer. But in Hereditary, we don't really have that because it's just a family trying to hold themselves together through this trauma. And then at the end, everything happens so fast, there's no other option. And on the rewatch, like there never was another option because the members of the cult were always pushing them to this. They're in the... You know, they're there from the beginning at the funeral. 
Joan comes to the schoolyard to scare Peter. You on the the telephone pole that where Charlie gets her head smacked off. There's Payman's. Uh, what's that called? You mean like a little symbol with the yeah, like circle? The, the little s- scrolly symbol on their necklaces is carved into that pole. Yeah, I think they're like the how you mentioned. They're really you don't it doesn't break the reality because their actions are consistent with their motivations, right? Like Steve, he at the end he does want to get the police involved, which yeah, I the police, right? And maybe some psychiatric help for yeah. Annie. Um, but like he's been struggling with do I, you know, do I get people involved when he was trying to write that email? Um, or do I keep indulging her and help her and support her? And when he finally decides to put his foot down, that's when he burns up. And then you look at at a Peter, you know, Peter. I think he's just like a kid. He's just trying to struggle with it and deal with it. But he's he's a kid. He's kind of powerless. You look at Anne. She, I think she's like really more grief stricken and more desperate than than um, Steve. You know, her husband. So I think. And and she's also seen with Joni, like, um, you know, the other world. So um, I think that kind of draws her in. And so you see that she really doesn't want to get other, other help involved or do some stuff that you were like, well, if I were in her case, I would do that. At the same time, like, she, she is, like, trying to take control. And she's willing to sacrifice herself, ultimately, by burning the book. So you can't say like their motivations either don't make sense or are inconsistent with the character. So I think that's pulled off well. Yeah. It's kind of uh, just you talking made me think back to get out again and Jordan Pill's approach where he didn't want you thinking, oh, well, you know, you could just leave at this point or something and just trying to stay grounded and real throughout and I, I love that that point that, you know, Annie, she she knows that there's some evil spirit after Peter and and she knows that getting the police won't help. So that's why she doesn't call them. You know, when she finds the mother's body, uh, when Steve wants to call them, she knows it's not going to help. And she knows that the book has something to do with it. So she's willing to to kill herself, which she believes will happen if they burn the book. And then, you know, I guess just going deeper into that idea of, of them being powerless and, you know, they're, they're making decisions consistent with their beliefs, but you could also view it as their, their decisions are meaningless because they're, they're always being driven towards that ending of, of giving a male host to payment. I think it's another thing that, you know, you don't really notice until you think about it or you rewatch or you revisit it is when Annie first goes to her grief counseling and she just unloads with her, her history with her mother and and trying to get through, um, you know, find some sort of release or relief. And she talks about how her father starved himself to death and her brother hung himself in her mom's bedroom. And once you 
you learn that the whole film has been about getting Peter ready to become a host for Payman. You realize, oh, they've been trying to do this for for decades. It's decades in the making. The mother, she was trying to get Payman to possess her son or her husband or it's all it's all part of some grand master plan where they're pulling on the strings like they're puppets so i don't know if there's really much more to say as far as like theme or or genre i did want to just go back again to ari's visuals i love that that opening shot is really cool with the dolly into the dollhouse and I also love the the shot when Annie realizes that Joan has been playing her and she goes to Joan's house and or wait no that's before we realize it right before she finds the books anyway there's some I don't know some stress around. so Annie goes to Joan's house and she's knocking on the door and we slowly dolly back through Joan's house to see all this occult stuff and to see that picture of Peter, that's just such a great reveal. And I couldn't think of a more cinematic way to, to reveal that Joan is not who we think she is. And I just really love that the visual of, of her house and, and Annie's out there knocking on the door and we see, you know, the, the same triangle that was in the grandmother's bedroom and, uh, the little figurines that look like what Charlie's making all the time. Final thoughts is just, there's no like secret recipe for a a great horror film. And there's a lot of different ways you can go about it. I think, you know, if, if, if it was formulaic, then you probably see more of them. But I think, you know, if you watch this, there's a lot that stands out, a lot of good things that you could take away. And and say, yeah, this would make, I want to see more of this. And I, you know, a lot of that's his style. A lot of it's his, but a lot of it's the choices of the, the way the story is made. And I would, I would recommend it worth the watch. Yeah, definitely worth a watch. Thank you so much for listening to Notes from the Silver Screen. As always, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and know someone else who might, feel free to share it. And we'll be back here in a couple of weeks with our next episode on The Princess Bride.